This is Antje Dieterich at Spadework, a podcast where organizers from all kinds of places and struggles talk about the hard lessons learned through their political work, what organizing means for them, what keeps on going wrong, what great victories they had, and what made them possible. With me is my wonderful co-host, Daniel Gutierrez. In this episode, we will talk with two organizers from the climate movement. We will focus on their struggle to save the planet and their fight against a pending doomsday clock. For those that don't know, the doomsday clock was a Cold War symbolic representation of the likelihood of human-made catastrophe used to represent the state of affairs between Moscow and Washington, D.C. Today, we want to talk about a doomsday clock that has developed to symbolize the relationship between capitalist society and nature. We feel it's an apt symbol to talk about the big problem facing the climate movement today. That is, on the one hand, developing popular force and organization takes time. Spadework, the podcast's name, refers to civil rights organizer Ella Baker's conceptualization of organizing as the long and difficult preparatory agricultural labor of digging, seeding, irrigating and mending that makes a harvest possible. And yet, we are actually running out of time. According to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we have until 2030, just nine years, to diminish emissions by 45% and reach net zero by 2050 in order to avert utter ecological catastrophe. We decided to call this episode Spadework Against the Doomsday Clock. With us today are Kim Solyevna, she's a climate activist from Berlin and a spokesperson for Endegelände, a climate justice alliance that fights against coal mining and for carbon emission decreases. Kim was most recently involved in a struggle against the opening of a coal energy plant earlier this year. And Katharina Stiel, a nurse and a union activist who became a member of Fridays for Future during her studies and currently works for Verdi's climate campaign, aiming to connect climate and union activists in a meaningful way. Welcome Katharina. Welcome Kim. Kim, I would like to start with you. Maybe you can say a word or two about your own history and how you got involved into climate politics. Right. So a friend of mine took me along to an Endergelände action back in 2018. And this was the first moment when I really got in touch with the climate justice movement and when I started to learn about certain things. And afterwards, I got engaged with my local group and started to work more and focus more on different topics. And this year I was working as a spokesperson for Endergelände and I engaged in the fight against the new coal fire power plant in Datteln, which is where I was born. And also for you, Katrina, I mentioned your way from Union to Fridays for Future to Union. Maybe you can fill that in with a little of a personal <laughs> information around it. Yeah, sometimes I start by saying like I was a climate activist when I was really little because we had like a nuclear power, uh, 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 how do you say it, nuclear power, power plant, power plant mm -hmm. in uh, the region where I grew up. And so when I was really little, I already went to the protest against this. 
um, with my parents, but like really how I got engaged right now was um, I was part of, uh, I was working as a nurse and stopped my uh, nursing job and got into the university and there I uh, got to know so many different people. And then Fridays for Future came 2018 and started those big protests and I was really, really impressed by that. And uh, went to the first protest and big protest in March, I think. And then, uh, I don't know, it somehow developed uh, to uh, founding the Students for Future in Leipzig on, at the university where we had a group that started with, I think, 40 people, like on the first day, and then uh, developed to, on the highest uh, time, it was like 120 people to uh, to uh, to work with us and uh, yeah that's how I started and since I'm a union member I was always interested in connecting uh, the unions to Fridays for Future and the other way around because I think uh, I don't know the struggles I've got to know from uh, how to strike and how to organize uh, people and what uh, it means to organize power was always something that I thought we had to link together to fight for mm -hmm. one reason. Mm -hmm. I think it's very interesting that for both of you, actually, a bigger event was something that caused you to get involved. I really would like to get into that later a bit more. So then we actually go into a question that still is a little bit more meta because, um, yeah, we will go into the question of uh, how to engage people in a later part. So um, the more concrete context here in Germany, I think one particularity, and you mentioned that Katharina with going to the nuclear power plant protests, is that this second wave, as it's called, climate movement, beginning somewhere in the 70s, um, really managed to to stay alive in difference to, for example, the US or I think also the UK, where you have a fairly broad part of society somewhat agreeing with um, the necessity to protect the environment. It wasn't that much about carbon emission, but um, I remember as a child um, these acidic rain, there were the ozone layer um, uh, dangers from different gases. And that movement had a, a long time to kind of develop. Um, in fact, one institutionalized arm is actually the Green Party, right? That was like a conglomerate of movements. Now almost hard to imagine such a different organization today. But it was this like attempt of a variety of movements to form a united front and also to form a front that actually connected social and, uh, for example, feminist issues with uh, environmental questions. Um, so what I was wondering, and I think that first goes to Katarina, is um, if you learned or if you looked into those attempts of these movements from the past, if you basically learned from their mistakes and their wins to find that connection that you mentioned you want to look for, to find that connection between a union, uh, traditionally labor struggle and environmental questions. 
Yeah, I think that's it's a fairly new development in Fridays for Future we, because uh, the basic that we were starting on was always like the big protest on the streets where students, which was new, like the real young students, not like the f uh, people from universities, but like the children, like real children from the age of, I don't know, six or even younger, mm -hmm. came together to say, well, that's our, f our future. We have to fight for it. And that's something new, I would say. And um, to have linked it to something different to say, okay, the protest is not enough because that's something we do all the time. We're always calling on the politicians to change some, something. We're always like, okay, someone has to do something for us. We're just calling on it. We see the house is on fire and we're calling on it and we're saying, here, look at it, it's on fire. But we are not involving that much into like the real change that is happening or that is possible to happen by organizing people or to come together with people who are, have the possibility to really change things. Because what politicians always do is always give us promises. And I don't know, even Angela Merkel uh, applauded us and said, well, Fridays for Future, that's like so great. You're like awesome. And thank you for calling on us. And thank you for reminding us that the planet is uh, valuable. And <laughs> that's really crazy because like uh, we've been doing the strikes for over I think it's almost two years now. It's like almost, yeah, it's over two years and nothing has changed that much. It's like the itty bitty things that are changing, but they're not helping us. And uh, since uh, some time now, we're starting to connect to different groups that are not particularly the, I don't know, the classics of uh, climate activists. Mm -hmm. Like it's not the Greenpeace and the huge... Um, yeah, organizations. We're working with them as well because they're very important. But we're also reaching out to different groups like the unions, which are, well, they wouldn't call themselves climate activists. Mm -hmm. But if you look at some jobs that are, I don't know, that they are uh, providing, it's like the bus drivers that we had a big campaign this year. They are part of our solution for uh, yeah, ending this uh, war on the planet and Yeah, so I don't know, that's something new we're trying to link to, to get involved with uh, people who are not particularly, uh, yeah, so-called climate activists. Mm -hmm. um, Kim, do you also, like, does Ende Gelände reach out to non-traditional <laughs> climate activist groups or... Yeah, well, basically, we have a steady connection platforms to all the environmental NGOs. Mm -hmm. So there is... Um, a regular connection from Endergelände persons to NGO persons, um, which has been established a long time ago, and they made the experience that it's valuable for us to have this kind of steady contact and not punctual, um, let's say, before organizing a mass action or so, but really um, stay in touch on a regular basis. And apart from that, I think this year has been kind of the first actions together with, or campaigns that we organized together with unions. Because traditionally, the organization form of unions for us to get in, in touch with us is somewhat difficult because we're working on the topic 
of coal mining. Mm -hmm. And they, <laughs> the worker unions of coal mining are naturally very opposed to our positions. So this has always been a struggle for us of how to get in touch with them or in discussion and um, because you know, we have we have we are just at different positions and maybe not everybody wants to get in touch with each other so I think which is also interesting is like Indigalanda my roommate is part of Indigalanda <laughs> too and so I've noticed the what I think is really important which is or sometimes not seen is like that you make so much groundwork and like you are from Dutton so the people that live around the city which might not call themselves climate activists but they see like the environmental destroyed uh, around them and their I don't know housing is uh, endangered and to get involved with those kind of people who are well they not they're not climate activists but they turn into it because they see how how the yeah force of uh, what the people want to do to the planet is going to destroy the environment around them. So. Totally. This is also true for the Rhineland area and the mining areas over there because the people that live in the last villages that haven't been destroyed yet by um, open cast mines, they defend their homes and yes, some of them are or have become climate activists but not everybody mm -hmm. and we also it, it's a very important aspect of the work to get in touch with those people and stand in solidarity with them and support them yeah as, as well as in like saxony which is like uh if you look in the a region of saxony where there's the coal mining and then they have the people like this they are destroying the small villages like barely people left there It's uh, an area where nobody wants to live anymore and nobody's living there anymore. The structure for like social life is mm -hmm. really on the ground. Mm -hmm. yes. And then you see, I don't know, uh, Ende Gelände going there and talking to people. It's really, I think it's really, really good work. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, there is in these Green New Deal discussions, the, the expression that no one should be forced to choose between their economic survival as an employee in a coal mine, for example, and the future of their children. That's actually not a fair choice to make. Um, but there had been different, actually successful attempts in the US in the logging industry, right, where this one activist um, connected to the people like logging, like cutting trees, mm -hmm. to the loggers and the environmental activists, because she, I think her family was involved in logging. She was involved in climate activism. It was a personal connection, but she saw that both sides like the forest. They're not like hating the forest or something. Or Coal miners don't hate nature. It's, it's not the motivation. It's a, it's a question of economics, and you have to be able to develop the trust that you care about that, that it's not that completely a side issue if people lose their jobs it's obviously important yeah especially like in Saxony where there are not as many jobs left yeah and it's not many jobs that it's not that many it's not millions of people who are like I don't know con connected to coal mining jobs but it's yeah in, in all of Germany it's barely 20,000 anymore so yeah and yeah. we still keep them there because I don't know it's also something like a prestige job it's like very prestigious and so I don't know. Uh, Strong union yeah. representation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, for them, it's a traditional issue. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I have a couple questions that I think would help contextualize this. Um, 
first, I was wondering if you all could, uh, if you all could uh, explain to an international audience kind of the, the terrains that these struggles are happening on, on here in Germany. Like, obviously, there's, like, urban environments where we talk about, like, you know, um, public transportation, but you all have just also highlighted interesting rural um, landscapes where intense uh, struggles are going on. So if you could tell us about um, Rhineland and Saxony and the, the history of these places and why these places are uh, the current uh, sites of struggle that they are, that would be great. Um, do you want to start, perhaps, uh, Kim? Yeah. So basically, in Germany, there's three main areas where coal mining um, takes place right now, which is in Western Germany, in the Rhineland area, um, and then in Eastern Germany and Saxony. And then there's also a small region um, more in the center of Germany um, where, not, where not like any actions have taken place yet, I guess. So the um, regions and the Gelände has done most actions was in Rhineland and in Lusatia and Saxony. And for us, uh, our strategy is not to take urban action and go to the parliament, for example, but we want to go to the destruction side with the idea of showing those pictures and showing pictures of open cast mines that not every person in Germany might be aware of. For example, I myself, um, also I have grown up in the same region. I never saw an image of a coal mine. And it it's was impressive. it's really <laughs> impressive and shocking to see those massive holes in the earth and just stand there and look at it, of course. And this is part of the strategy of Endergelände to create those images and to bring them into public debate. And of course, um, the struggle of the people that live there and whose villages are uh, going to be destroyed or have already been destroyed goes uh, farther back in time. So this is like a struggle we, we are uniting, which, which has been there before. I was wondering if um, you all could also tell us about, say, Friday for Futures? or Fridays for Future, and um, Endegelände. Like, what are the histories that these organizations come out of mm-hmm. uh, for an international audience? And then also a little bit about, um, because they're not like single organizations, right? Like, Fridays for Future is composed of students for future, apparently, but I've also seen on Twitter that there's parents for future and scientists for future. So if you could tell us a little bit about the, the, the kind of sub-ecologies that these organizations form, that would be great. Okay, so I'll start with Endeglinde then. Mm-hmm. Endeglinde has come into existence in 2015, and this was when the first mass action of civil disobedience happened. So the main idea is to go to sites where destruction happens and to take immediate actions with your body and to do civil disobedience together in a mass action. And since then, every year, we have organized at least one major um, action, sometimes two, in those traditional coal mining areas I've just mentioned. And, yeah, trying to change the public debate around this topic of CO2 emissions coming out of coal power and... um, 
yeah, talking talking about energy in Germany, the energy mix. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so once upon a time there was Greta Thunberg. Yeah, it all started with Greta, I guess. And uh, I don't know, a lot of people know about it uh, or have heard her name. Greta Thunberg, a young uh, climate activist from Sweden who started in, I think, August 2018 by sitting in front of the parliament and protesting the uh, yeah, en environmental uh, destruction. Uh, it all started there and I don't know, it's like a kind of like a wave came over to Germany, to France, to Belgium, to the Netherlands, to the United States until India. It's something that started yeah, very small with one person and has developed into a um, huge, I don't know, it's a huge movement with, in Germany, we have over 600 groups, like in very small cities to the very big cities. We have like in Berlin, I don't know, we have different, we have one big, like Fridays mm -hmm. for Future Berlin, but we have also like one that's uh, more focused on, uh, I don't know, a different part of Berlin because there are so many people mm -hmm. and Berlin is very big. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the way. And uh, yeah, I, I think in Germany, especially it became a real phenomenon and it was really became really big in comparison to maybe different countries. I don't I'm not so sure why, because I think it's uh, something has to do with the persistence of the Fridays for Future activists that really like until last year, they every single Friday did not matter which like in March or April or like every Friday. Rain they or were shine. On the streets. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It was really crazy. Yeah, we have like a real big movement. We're really connected. We have an international uh, call. You have European connections. And uh, yeah, I don't know. We learn um, mm -hmm. very much from each other because we have in Germany very privileged, I think, in comparison to maybe different countries who are uh, already suffering from the environmental destruction. Mm -hmm. So that's very good to have be connected with global Fridays for Future groups. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Short moment, open the windows. Okay. Um. <laughs> Now I'd like it if we move the scale of reference further down to the concrete practices and tactics that define the organizational strategies um, that your organizations utilize. What should be clear by now is that given the actually existing balance of forces within the state apparatus and the time of the electoral cycle, we can't place all of our chips Uh, in winning control of the state apparatus. We have to be able to pressure decision makers, no matter the party, to enact policies that push back the ticking of the doomsday clock, if not abolish the clock altogether. That means we need to build extra parliamentary force and pressure. What does that extra parliamentary force mean exactly? It means a broad range of activities from rallies to strikes, that a pull of pressure that weighs down on decision makers Uh, towards specific political directions develops. But those that create the least amount of pressure are protests and rallies. That is, while making visible the broad reach of support, protests and rallies alone do not really produce a pressure that extends beyond the symbolic. And I think you've brought that up already, Katarina. What creates the biggest amount of pressure on decision makers is systemic disruptions. When people are able to make the systems upon which the status quo depends on suddenly stop operating, that's power. 
That means mass civil disobedience that develops deep systemic disruption. But there's an important point that complicates that, that disobedience and disruption has to be popularly supported by majorities. And that's an important point to have uh, popular support because even if you have the most militant of forces capable of the most intense disruption, if people don't support it, they'll support government attempts to suppress that disruption. As a counterpoint, recent events in Chile demonstrate what happens when you have disruptive action that is articulated to majoritarian popular support. Decision makers buckle under a two-pronged pressure. But I think all of us can agree that building those events and building those majorities require more than just saying, show up at the open pit coal mine on this date, or go on strike and bring the basic operations of the city to a halt next Sunday. Building big, successful disruptions that are popularly supported and that actually affect change take time. And, building, and the building of a whole backdrop of mechanisms and practices that make these events possible. Think of all the meetings, all the one-on-ones, all the phone calls, all the babysitters and family members called in to take care of the kids, all the barbecues, all the debates, all the press release statements, all the Instagram posts, all the rallies, all the speeches, and all the cups of coffee and tea prepared. It's a lot of labor that goes into organizing not only an event, but the relationships and organizational cohesion capable of making them popular and strong. To this end, I want us to have a concrete discussion on the concrete tactics and practices um, developed around the problems I just highlighted. Let's start with the problem of developing enough pressure as quickly as possible to get decision makers to enact climate change. The problem of pressure building tactics. I want to start with you, Kim. What kind of pressure building tactics does Enda Galinda rely upon? And can you tell us a little bit about how these are organized? Mm -hmm. First of all, I wouldn't completely agree on that protest does not put the most pressure. Because if you have, for example, a global strike like last year in December with over 1.5 million people on the streets, then mm -hmm. this being not effective has mostly to do or is mostly showing how dysfunctional our political system has become when in a democracy um, the vote of the majority <laughs> should count. And also last year saw a massive change in public debate around climate protection and we had a majority of Germans agreeing to the statement that we should employ more climate protection but nothing has happened. So um, it's a difficult question to say which actions put most pressure on politicians mm -hmm. because, of course, you can have small action groups, for example, um, blocking a power plant. But then um, we see that these images of Endergelende mass actions where you have up to 6,000 people running into an open cast mine <laughs> is a much more powerful image. And... Mm. If you have only a small group of, let's say, 10 or 20 people in a blockade, then people can easily say, oh, this is not representing majority, and this is just like a small group of weird people which have their own opinion. So, um, yeah, this, uh, um, it's really difficult questions. And we know that our actions, the mass actions, have a more symbolic character because 
the disruption we cause um, can vary also. Okay, it's not given that a power plant needs t- to get shut down because of an endocrine action. Mostly it's not the case because they have such a great storage of coal that they don't need to shut down the entire coal power plant. Um, of course, this would be like a really, really great symbol. And so we, as I said, per year we have one mass action and then also we have regional actions, which sometimes are more effective when it comes to a concrete law. For example, this year we had the law to face our coal um, and the government decided upon a coal phase out until 2038, which is way too late for us. And so we had um, small blockades um, in different mines uh, in Germany, which is like the only way you can organize immediate and direct action because it takes a lot of time, obviously. And this is like our strategy to, yeah, to adapt to this problem. To On the one hand, to have mass actions that need to be organized in a long run um, for throughout several months and on the other hand to disrupt in certain moments with smaller actions. Just as a real quick question on a practical level for those who want to also do that <laughs> in their homelands, uh, do you have throughout the year regular meetings on a federal level so that everyone meets or, or how do we imagine Uh, the big events being prepared because I mean it's not just one call and everyone just goes sure. <laughs> and it's obviously yeah. more yeah it's an ongoing work so Endeglende is organized in different local groups um, in cities all over Germany and we also have working groups that prepare certain aspects for those actions um, where people from again from all over Germany come together um to to organize those aspects. Mm-hmm. So yes, on the one hand, there's regional and local meetings, but there's also meetings of those working groups where people from all over Germany mm-hmm. uh, participate. Okay. Um, if I could just ask, um, what kind of further tension does that create? Because I absolutely agree that it's um, it is more complicated than just creating majoritarians. But on the one hand, you highlight how there is uh, majority support for uh, uh, deeper action around climate change, and there is action, but that's still not enough to push decision makers, like within the time frame that we've set up. So um, what do you think, that, what kind of implications does that have in terms of developing pressure? Like, do you guys have to develop more pressure or... Apparently, apparently <laughs> 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 um, yes, and also um, this year has been extremely complicated mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. an climate protection agenda setting because of COVID. Weird. So <laughs> we had a really good start, and we had the slogan of "By 2020 we rise," and we were convinced that this was going to be our year and really f- powerful. Um, And so then COVID happened and we saw that everybody who has been talking about climate protection the year and the month before just started talking about COVID and Mm. like 
it was a, as if everybody had forgotten about it. Yeah. And the main, like our main difficulty and our main goal was to bring back climate protection on the agenda. Mm -hmm. And this has been extremely difficult because um, at the beginning of the year, demonstrations were forbidden, which is like really mm -hmm. difficult starting point for organizing whatever, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, which ha was a really hard time for us. And then it was really difficult circumstances to to bring to life the mass action that we had this year. And we're extremely happy that it finally could happen and that everything went well. So um, we developed a special hygiene concept for this action. And mm -hmm. there was still, I think, um, approximately 3,000 people that took part in it. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was really successful. And other um, climate activist group asked us for this concept to mm -hmm. also implement it. Mm -hmm. And it was not, or we were not sure about having this action at all. Yeah, yeah. Katharina, can you describe the kinds of actions Friday for Future has developed to build pressure? and then those used in union struggles around public transportation. Uh, the different kinds of effects these tactics develop on decision makers. And then, last but not least, the different organizational strategies these uh, different tactics require. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the I think the classic Fridays for Future pressure action is making a protest on Friday. Uh, on the streets, that's like uh, calling uh, on politicians to, uh, yeah, change their uh, policies. And it was, I think, from the beginning, always something where we were uh, supported by the Scientists for Future, which is a huge group of scientists who have the evidence uh, all figured out and <laughs> they uh, are calling on the politicians for I think over 30 years already but they uh, only through Fridays for Future they got the voice or loud we heard them the first time because they mm -hmm. were talking and nobody was listening but through Fridays for Future it was the first time people mm -hmm. were listening to listening what the scientists had to say and um, I think that's what we mainly did we were calling on the politicians to do something mm -hmm. and everybody should get involved we were calling also on since fridays for future is mainly from the beginning a student uh, uh movement we were calling on the grown-ups uh to join us which uh yeah resulted in parents for future grandparents for future everybody for future i don't know <laughs> like everybody mm -hmm. was joining also, teachers think, yeah. for future we had uh, entrepreneurs for future we have i don't know it's everything yeah psychologists <laughs> we have health for future we have i don't know everybody is for future but um yeah that's i think the main thing we did we have like a ag structure where we have like people that's who are focusing what's an ag structure so it's uh, like a group Arbeitsgruppe, working, working yeah. group, yeah, a working group structure where like the working group talks to uh, the Bundestagsabgeordneten, like the main federal, federal yeah. yeah, to the go governors. And we have um, a strategy uh, 
working group who uh, thinks about what kind of strategies we could maybe adapt, like uh, supporting Endegelände uh, in last summer, to how to do that and uh, how to make it comfortable for everyone to get involved. We have um, yeah working groups who work with uh, Greenpeace, BUND, Campac, big uh, environmental organizations. And it's always something that we're calling on someone. We're not getting really involved, I think, in, yeah, it's always like an, yeah, c calling on someone. That's what I think. There are uh, so many questions coming out of what you're saying there. But I think with the calling on, because we had talked about that before, um, Do you feel that connecting to the union might lead uh, a way out of that? Yeah. Like getting a step further, not just demanding change, but making it? <laughs> Or, yeah, Yeah, I think that's, uh, I, I would agree with there because the, like you said, we had like 1.4 million people on the streets, which is a really big number for like environmental uh, protest in Germany, I think in the last 10 years, it's or even like f longer, it's like one of the biggest demonstrations we've seen so far. But it's still not a majority, it's still a minority of Germany that's striking. Like since we, if we say we have like 81 million people living in Germany, we have like 1.4 million people going on the streets and getting in action, we need more people. And so If you look towards the unions, we have like Verdi, which is a very big union uh, where the nurses are also uh, organized. They have like not not quite almost two million uh, union members. And if you want to, I think there are connections like the, there might just be, have been uh, Verdi union members uh, who have been to our strike. But if you want to try to get the real like the huge union involved, you have to find a topic which is uh, where they are fighting and which mm -hmm. is something that is connected to us. And that's what we did last year or this year. We um, also like last year we started this. We were trying to find a topic that was. Uh, f interesting for the both of us. And so we uh, talked about public transport because the auto industry in Germany is like huge and uh, it's the <laughs> it's like <laughs> the biggest and most important thing. And if you talk about Germany, you always talk about Volkswagen and talk about Mercedes and all the great cars that come from here. And we have like a huge industry where so many people are working, but it's not an industry for the future. It's not scientists for future, so it's uh, not for the future because, well, uh, the cars are not uh, really good for the environment. I don't know how to explain this in English, but it's like... Uh, they're not sustainable. Yeah, they they're not, not sustainable. Be, yeah. Like uh, you drive cars uh, that are getting bigger and bigger every year. You They sell cars that are getting bigger and heavier every year. So you have to build wider streets for those cars. And you always like it's one point six people sitting in a car, the car in, in like on a daily basis stands for 23.5 hours. <laughs> so like a half an hour you drive, but you need a car. The cities are full of cars. It's crazy. You like I live in Leipzig where on my street left and the left and right side is full of parked cars. There's no space for trees and it's not beautiful, pretty or it's comfortable. And there is always 
they are, they've taken up so much space. And we were thinking about, okay, uh, they have a big uh, fight for a union contract coming up in uh, Germany, not only in one city, but in whole Germany. They were trying to fight for a new contract for the bus drivers. And so we were like thinking, okay, we have to get involved in this. And that's what we did. We um, yeah, started to talk to the union. And that was like, I think, the biggest and hardest work, what you described, like how many uh, phone calls, coffees, I don't know how many meetings I've went to, talked to so many people to uh, yeah, get an understanding of what they're doing and to make them understand that we're not against what they're doing. We're not <laughs> against them, mm -hmm. which is, uh, yeah, it's not that hard to explain because you're going to maybe a strike and they are like, what are you doing here? You're a climate activist. You have nothing to lose here. It's like, what are you doing here? And um, it's always something that you, yeah, you start a conversation, which is at the beginning really hard. But if you come to who are you fighting against or who are you mm -hmm. fighting for, it's always something that brings us together because we're not against bus drivers. We're not against buses. We're not against, <laughs> I don't know, public transport. We're completely for public transport. And if we want more public transport, we need more people working there. We need more buses. We need more people working on, uh, yeah, on the public transport to have. And if you want that, you need good job, uh, good, good jobs. You need good uh, working times. You need good working conditions. And yeah, that's what they were fighting for. And so we joined them in this fight. And we had 30 cities in Germany that were fighting. They were like the first time since I don't know how many years they had climate activists joining the strikes of uh, unions mm -hmm. this year. Okay. Um, I have uh, another question uh, for you, Kim. Um, how has Fridays for Future affected Endegelände? Like, has that been a positive exchange? And um, what kind of relationships have uh, the two organizations developed? Yeah, it's totally been a, a positive exchange. So um, we found a really good way of working together around our mass actions. So I really like this kind of synergy effect that comes from organizing um, action weekends together, actually. So typically um, this year and last year we had on Fridays, we had Fridays for Future demonstrations in the nearby cities of the areas where endogland actions would take place on the other day. And normally um, there have been also uh, Fridays for Future demonstrations which were kind of working as one action group of Endergelände, which um, allowed other activists to just go along and then afterwards find their way into coal mines. And this is a really, really great synergy effect that has helped us to, to get organized and mobilize more people. And we also see more and more Fridays for Future kids and activists that actually want to take part in Endergelände groups and then mm -hmm. say, hey, I want to, I don't know, like take one step further and also demonstrate but do civil disobedience. Yeah. We have the one side that is like Fridays for Future. I think it's not they're not completely opposed to each other, but like we have 
some people from the Fridays for Future movement joining in the Gelände, also like in the big mass uh, civil disobedience strikes. And then we have the other half that's going back to the unions who are more traditional and that's awesome. slow <laughs> and calm <laughs> and everything is in order. <laughs> and then you have like the other half, which is, I think, really interesting to see because it's they're not opposed to each other. But they're just joining. So yeah, and I mean, that's totally okay, yeah. because in climate justice movement, we're so many different yeah. players, which all have their own strategies. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah. 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 Um, it kind of leads a little bit into a section um, that we have touched various times, what, uh, what for me runs under professionalization, not meaning that you necessarily have yet your wage labor there, but that... Um, the the movement is diversified but and has like specific organizations that fulfill specific functions in the broader picture but also i i feel you see with the two of you very well that within organizations and i think that's a positive thing and i wonder if that it's also a learning effect or maybe you can talk a little bit about how you feel that developed in your uh, organizations that you are a spokesperson that's not a thing that a movement used to have necessarily 10 years ago, where you then had the problem that random people would very unprepared say something in a microphone and it would just look really bad. It was so easy to make them all look like, um, like, like they don't know what they're doing. They, don't, they are just there to like dirty the city <laughs> or burn a car or whatever you want to say. Um, and so I think that is a professionalization, but also you like mentioned, right? yeah, a specialization is more the word. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you have groups that try to think about how to welcome new people. That is also something that I feel is new and is really the spade work that we talked about earlier, but is really not not just there. Like it has to be a, a conscious decision for a group to say, we will allocate resources in, in terms of time and people to think about that. So maybe um, Kim starts a little bit with the specialization within Endegelände and then you can talk a little bit about it, Katrina. <laughs> yeah, um, I can only talk about it broadly because it takes place on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we have different working groups that I mentioned before. For example, we have the press working group that I am part of. And we are we are not just working sh or start to work shortly before an action, but we work all year round mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because also all year round there are different media requests and we try to best represent what Endergelände is to traditional public media. So, for example, we have d different mechanisms that we developed over time, like... Um, elaborating a special wording for actions like <laughs> topics we want to focus on and uh, we want to bring into public debate. We have discussions and how we achieve this and what kind of words and wordings we use for mm -hmm. achieving it. And also we have for the press working group, we have established a fringe 
Flint rule. So before, uh, when Anna Glenda started, there was always a um, mixed spokesperson. So there was a male spokesperson and a female one. Mm-hmm. And then people realized that the male spokespersons would always get cited more in articles. Mm-hmm. And then, um, yeah, there was like, okay, then we'll just stop to have male spokesperson (laughs) and establish the Flint rule and Mm -hmm. yeah and this is also about empowering people and empowering uh, women to speak up which would otherwise maybe not dare to Mm -hmm. so I think a lot of the professionalization within Endeglenda has to do with skill share to Mm -hmm. develop good um, structures so that skill share can happen for every little detail that we need for organizing. Mm-hmm. That's um, great. Yeah, I don't know. I could talk for hours about like <laughs> <laughs> examples, but I think this is like the main, um, yeah, the main aspect. Okay, that uh, sounds very interesting. I think we might sh- just come back to mm-hmm. that in a moment. Does that we, mm-hmm. Katarina gives a short, yeah, I think uh, what impressed me the most uh, in Fridays for Future is that you have like the Skillshare starts with uh, I don't know young people that are so young that are I don't know very much younger than I am that are fourteen and that are sharing their skills maybe on social media how to do it <laughs> and that are so much better TikTok. than I am. It's like they are TikTok. They're, they're like I don't know. It's really really impressive to have. A sixteen-year-old uh, uh, girl coming up to you and telling you, "Well, y- if you give an interview, you should uh, focus on saying this and that, and we have to fix, uh, get this into the press, and get this into the press." And you're like, "There, what? Uh, like you're sixteen? Like when I was sixteen, I was like far away from being as smart as you are, and that is like really impressive. And we have also um, a rule that we try not to have one person uh, have all the media intention, uh, attention because like Luisa Neubau, who's uh, fo- like by the press uh, called as the spokesperson of Fridays for Future, she has so much pressure on her because she is representing the whole movement. Mm-hmm. And we try to not put her in the focus on every interview and not to put her on every TV interview and not in every press article to have her uh, quoted because it's a lot of pressure on her and we want to show also how diverse Fridays for Future is. Mm -hmm. And that's also something I would quickly uh, point on that we as Fridays for Future had to also focus on the whiteness of this movement because Mm -hmm. we are uh, very like in in Germany. In Germany, we are really uh, white and uh, I don't no, it's like we have a very privileged background. There's a lot of structural racism yeah. in Germany, let's say. And we have <laughs> so many people who, uh, I don't know, who focus on a topic which is mostly in the in the past has uh, influenced or has impacted the lives of so many people who are not white. And wh- the cl- environmental injustice is impacting on so many people who are not white. And mm-hmm. so... We had to focus on that and we have a group that is focusing on that and trying to get in every small working group to focus on it and talk about it and reflect on it, um, mm-hmm. which I think is very important. Yeah, same. Yeah. <laughs> does, does it, is it possible that also the 
because both of you said you got in through an event, a bigger event that was like an exciting uh, uh, activity. <laughs> a gateway drug. A gateway drug. Thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, is it possible that that also makes it harder for people who, ha or as a white middle class person, I'm not really scared of the police. Mm -hmm. I am when I get arrested. Maybe because I'm isolated and um, mm -hmm. but there I don't grow up with that, for example, mm -hmm. as a person of color that feels differently as someone who might have residency issues or, mm -hmm. or other reasons. They might just say, I'm not going to go somewhere where I'm in the spotlight and in this like disobedience element of I, I get in trouble, not going to go there. Yeah, most of the year I'm trying to run away from the cops. <laughs> 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 trying to confront them. Um, <laughs> Is it something where you also feel that a field of activity or would you like to have more visibility for all the work you're doing before the coal mine? <laughs> Because, I mean, you can obviously be very active in Endegelände and not actually go to the coal mine, right? Like you don't have to block it. You can support so many other things. Mm. Totally. There's a lot of background support and work all over the year. Mm -hmm. And this is also what what's really important because without it, you, mass action wouldn't just be possible. Mm -hmm. And also, as in Price for Future, we have an anti-racist work group that focuses on an anti-racist perspective for all of our working groups, which of course takes time. Mm -hmm. This is like a process that we initiated last year. And of course, it's also about empowering black people and empowering minorities or just empowering people that don't dare to speak or share their vision or, mm -hmm. um, yeah, afraid to take part. Mm -hmm. well, Fridays for Future is not that radical right now. Mm -hmm. So it's I think it's easier maybe to get into a group. But mm -hmm. the I think the bigger problem is that the a difference or the gap between people who are like really privileged like the middle class it's like middle class white people who are organizing in Fridays for Future and people who are not that visible so it's I mm -hmm. think the push against that is might be a bit bigger than uh, to have to struggle on a protest uh, to get involved by the po uh, get endangered by police or something mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just wanted to add that for the first time in this year's Mars Action, we had an internationalist and anti-racist action group mm -hmm. where also a, a migration activist group engaged, um, nice. which I was really, really impressed by, actually, mm -hmm. um, because they experienced really hard police violence, mm -hmm. especially this action group. And I also wanted to add that our strategy of ID denial in mass actions is actually also a mechanism that is thought to support people who either don't have a passport or can't afford to get in <laughs> confrontation with the police. <laughs> that practice, no one brings ID and the idea is if you all get um, arrested, then you can't be identified and with enough numbers, right. it just becomes impossible to right. deal with, right? And then police can um, hold you in for, depending on the region, for mostly about 12 hours. And then they normally let you go if they can't 
tell who you are and can identify you. Wow. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Lastly, climate organizations are confronted by the need to develop and broaden a vision of an ecological society on the one hand and defend uh, climate action and systemic production or the systemic disruption that that produces, right? Um, this organizational problem deals with the need for popular education and to maneuver a media apparatus that isn't under our control. So, Kim, I was wondering, as press spokesperson for Endicalinda, can you tell us a bit about some of Endicalinda's strategies to broaden public awareness and support for your organization and climate action in general? And after that, Katrina, if you could tell us a little bit about how um, you already talked about, say, um, uh, scientists for future, um, how you try to circulate and develop a, a vision of an alternative future within the Fridays for Future Ecology and the unions, that would also be great. Yeah, I think our winning point is that a lot of different media are naturally interested in this because we have a kind of spectacular form of action that produces images, which is good for storytelling. So we focus on telling the story of our main claim is to phase out coal and all fossil fuels immediately and use those images of our action as a storytelling effect. And then on a more concrete level, we have special wordings that we try to get into public media, which is very difficult because mostly it not really suits their lines of wording. So, for example, it's really hard to get a quotation about system change into conservative mm -hmm. media, mm -hmm. which is another thing that we want to achieve as a press group. So we really also focus on this kind of detailed questions <laughs> on um, not only um, having our main claim, a call phase out, um, figured in those articles, but also how to get our vision across of that we need a profound system change, that we need to have a different economy that is not focused on growth because we're living on a planet with at the um, limited resources and we can't have limited growth. Um, and to get this message across also in conservative media, this is kind of our uh, one of our main challenges. <laughs> Fascinating. Um, Katarina? Can you ask me the question again? I forgot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I just wanted to know um, how you all, both in the union and in Fridays for Future, try to develop and circulate like uh, an image of a ecological world, mm. and um, circulate that within the rank and file and also outwards. It's I think uh, the basic or the base for everything was the scientists for future who gave us the information about where we're going and what is going to happen if we don't act now, and that's something that were facts and they were not, I don't know, uh, uh, pretty pictures or something. That's the real facts that are on the table, uh, uh, s studied out what everything is going to happen if we we're not changing now. And Fridays for Future is trying to paint a picture now. What It's not a pretty picture. It's mostly the picture that is going to show us what is going to happen if we're not acting now. And I think what we're trying right now with the work of the union is to give 
a real alternative to say, okay, what could happen if we change this and that right now? If we start moving on paying our bus drivers better and giving them better working conditions and having more buses on the streets and less cars and how could this world change if we start, I don't know, caring more about our environment and also about, about the people around us. Like it's not only, it's Fridays for Future is mostly something that is environmental, uh, like for the environment, but we also talk about the people who live in, in it. And uh, I think we're starting to uh, figure that out by talking to people who are not the climate, typical climate activists, who are telling us their stories, how they live, maybe in a small village in Saxony or uh, maybe outside Leipzig, who are telling us how they get to work or how their working conditions are or what they like or don't like. And we try to figure out how to live together in a world where, yeah, I don't know, it does not focus that much on uh, how to produce everything, but how to preserve maybe also yeah the environment around us. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add something on the storytelling effect, because you can just take coal mining as an example for showing how capitalism works. And this is what we try to do by our media strategy. We try to tell people, okay, so the coal mining, uh, the coal mining factories, not the... Um, The big coal mining companies, they don't care about the people that live mm -hmm. there. They destroy not only the landscapes, but also the homes of people. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. and um, the fossil system exploits natural resources, but also people. And for running, for example, this new hard coal fire power plant in Dutton, we need to import coal from Colombia or from Russia and leave the people over there alone <laughs> so with the social and ecological consequences. Mm -hmm. And so telling the story of a coal face out and showing images of coal mines is also talking about the problems within our system. <laughs> and also I think Fridays for Future sure is an organization of young people who have an image maybe in their head of a future, how they're going to live. But we have like, not only the young people are going to live in this future, there are also the grown-ups and older people who still will live in this. And so <laughs> it's more like a, uh, yeah, it's a conversation between the generations, which I think the media always, uh, they always play us out against each other. They always say, well, it's like young people against the old people, but it's not like that. It's like we have to talk to each other and that's something we're trying to do right now to figure out how this is going to work for all of us. And I don't know, that's the how I imagine the future, to talk t more to people and to not be yeah, isolated and uh, something what we can see right now in Corona, because if you don't have contact to different people, they, I don't mm. know, go crazy. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's it's a conversation between the generation and people, how we want to live together. I think that just about covers it, team. Uh, thank you, Katarina. Thank you, Kim, for coming on. Thank yeah, you for thanks. having us. Thank you for tuning in to Spadework Podcast, an educational project by Werkstatt für Bewegungsbildung, a movement school dedicated to providing ordinary people with the tools capable of building resilient, rewarding, and effective political organizations. Please find a link to the Werkstatt in the description. This project is made possible by so many labors.
We'd like to thank the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung and Roar Magazine for their comradely support. Artwork and music are a product of Solidarity by Amanda Preeb and Tyler Don. You can find links to Amanda's art and Tyler's music in the description. You can find out more about Enda Galenda, Fridays for Future, and Verdi also in the episode description. Thank you. Thank you.